the black and brown get down mary d moran and joseph jody donaldson Ooh, what is the jody uh, you know. just some shit you made up all nah, right you know, it's, uh, uh, yeah. all right that's what people call uh, me all my life jody uh, the problem is it's too it's always too many josephs so then it was uh, like okay in high school it was joe jody joe c joe w so uh, yeah. oh joe c mm-hmm Joe C, like as in Cruz, because there was a Joseph Cruz, there was a Joseph yeah. Donaldson, there was a Joseph Williams. Oh, but you're Joe so it was D. like Joe D. Uh, and then okay. it kind of, you know, took on its own personality. Yeah, public and then, schools, all kind of. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's just like, shoot, I started yes. school as Joseph. Yes. I remember like kindergarten even, Joseph. And then it was by the end of the first day, it was Joseph D. Mm-hmm. It was like, all right, then, you know, like I said, Joe D. Joe D. Then okay. it became okay. JD. Okay, well, and, uh, I am I'm Mary Jane D. Spires. <laughs> the D is the divinity. Um, but yes, um, okay, so we're at Baldwin and Company uh, having the time of our lives. Yeah, I'm super grateful for this space. Um, we're going to jump right in. We're talking about In the Heights. In the Heights. In the Heights. Do you want to break out in song right now? Nah, I'm nah. Good. nah. <laughs> <laughs> um, them days is over <laughs> I was talking about last time how I um, you know tried out for musical theater and musical mm-hmm. theater was like nah mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but now when I see uh, and I think you know I like uh, musical theater and sometimes it's like bruh I don't want us to be dancing and like fucking leaping around mm. and resilient all the fucking time mm. like how about just a more complex nuanced story about us so Lynn Miranda Lynn Manuel Miranda mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. did it again <laughs> 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 Um, you know, Hamilton, everybody, you know, uh, loves Hamilton and the Mm -hmm. critique, the big critique is it's made for white people and, you know, does not have a really critical, um, historical accuracy. It's kind of like they omitted the fact that slavery even existed for the most part. And, but we see black faces shucking and jiving. Talking right. about the quote unquote founders of, uh, excuse me, founding fathers of America. So, right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, it was a breakout, you know, uh, Broadway musical because mm-hmm. there had never really, I guess, been so many uh, black faces. Yeah. yeah Puerto Ricans mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in on Broadway in a specific um uh, play musical mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that and mm-hmm. so in the heights you was a uh a musical as well on broadway and the same critique that mm-hmm. folks have had of it then have of it uh with this um movie not, yeah, yeah yeah and you know the movie is great in terms of folks uh singing and dancing and you know even i would say the writing and the characters and mm-hmm. There is seemingly no, except for the one brother, mm-hmm. uh, no lead. Well, there's actually, because he's not a lead, there are no leads 
that are dark skinned dark skinned right black yeah, yeah yeah folks yeah. and for mm-hmm. in the heights being a dominican you know predominantly dominican neighborhood black dominican neighborhood in manhattan it's just wild right right um it's the notion that they're trying to push, well excuse me they're trying to get us to believe that it's more so race blind casting um for those of you who do not know race blind casting essentially is casting roles with whomever is the best person for that particular part instead it kind of seems like similar to hamilton we have race conscious casting which is casting for roles according to the way they were designed Mm. so yeah you talking about this was designed for uh white latinos (laughs) 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 Uh, so but but the casting was done by i mean obviously lin manuel but uh this man named john chu Mm -hmm. who uh crazy rotations yep and uh and so I think, you know, I've seen various interviews and he, you know, acknowledges as Lynn Manuel put something out acknowledging, mm-hmm. uh, but essentially absolving themselves yeah, yeah, absolutely. of the responsibility uh, absolutely. Uh, and saying that, you know, they casted <laughs> what was best for these mm-hmm. roles, mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, I'm just not buying it anymore, yeah, especially. Yeah. I mean, and they tried to make the argument that there were many faces that showed up to these uh, auditions, but they kind of just pick the best people from there. However, I think, not I think, it is the responsibility of those that have the platform to be more conscious of what they're putting in position to represent folks that look like them or who, as we see throughout the history of civilization, are not represented in the best light. So they missed the ball with an opportunity. I think it's important that, yeah, we can acknowledge the fact that from a theatrical production stance, it was incredible, kind of like Hamilton. However, it can still also be problematic. So you can have this and this still be a problem. Yeah. And how long have we been talking about? Mm I mean, representation, I, you know, representation, representation, uh, Afro-Latinos, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, people made a ton of money over the last couple of years. I was just about to say, you can monetize, yeah, Yeah. you monetize black culture and creativity, but you don't have black faces or appropriate faces, um, for these roles. So, yeah. Yeah. So the big thing I think is beyond the dancing roles, beyond the love interests, Mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, everybody love a black man in in the love interests, Mm -hmm. uh, like what about the lead actors mm-hmm. um and uh also i think given um the mirandas lynn manuel and his dad mm-hmm. luis and their politics mm-hmm. which uh in puerto rico first of all he, he ain't dominican he yeah. casted himself in a dominican <laughs> role um but uh you know, the politics of supporting PROMESA, mm-hmm. which is essentially, you know, this uh, body, but a law that, you know, privatizes and controls Puerto Rican economy and suffocates poor Puerto Ricans. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's clear that not from a economic standpoint, not from a culture or even people centered, uh, like, you don't give a fuck about uh, Dominicans or uh puerto ricans and i know that for some people who love hamilton who love mm-hmm. lin-manuel who think he's amazing because he is he's great yeah, he's talented yeah, he is. um that may feel very assaulting mm-hmm. but uh if your politics say you do not care about poor puerto ricans and if your uh, work consistently mm-hmm. demonstrates that you are going to uh have an erasure of dark-skinned 
people and always center light skin white Latinos, then that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, it's a back- foregone conclusion. Excuse me, it's a foregone conclusion. Like, hey, you can't continue to say, hey, I missed the mark. I missed. I dropped the ball. No, no, no. Like, <laughs> the lens is on you. So let's yeah. keep it on him. And, and while they have, even with the Promesa stuff, they have come back and said, you know, we regret supporting it. They're also not calling for uh, the tearing down the abolition of, of this body uh, that they know is about a very conservative privatization politics uh, in a uh, that is U.S. backed. Mm-hmm. Right. In a, you know, occupied uh, territory or occupied Puerto Rico. So it's. It's a no for me. All right. Yeah. I mean, it's enough for me, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, but, you know, I hear the people are watching it. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, you know, a lot of people are uh, probably have folks who are in it, you mm-hmm. know, and it's not to minimize um, the, the great work. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. those individual actors, mm-hmm. but it's uh, to um, call to accountability uh, the fact that we need a representation in terms of black, dark-skinned, Puerto Ricans, Panamanians, mm-hmm. uh, Dominicans, of course, given the heights, mm-hmm. uh, so that we can really reflect the beauty of our own neighborhoods. All people. Yeah. 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 Well, not all people. <laughs> we talking. <laughs> he talking all people. All we talking about. People. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> we talking dark skin. Uh, so yeah, uh, that's that on that. Uh, we are going to uh, move into Black Love Brown Pride, and in Black Love Brown Pride, we are talking to DJ Johnson. DJ is an entrepreneur and he's created this beautiful space that we call home to our podcast, which is a studio that is in Baldwin and Company. He uh, also, you know, owns the uh, Jeans Poboy. Hopefully we get to talk to him about that and uh, also owns Nola Art Bars, beautiful gallery, uh, cocktail, loungy area uh, that we usually get into drinks after <laughs> our episodes it's a safe space safe yes space. yes for the safe space and uh you know Baldwin and company which right. is we all know this beautiful black owned bookstore in new orleans uh so let's welcome dj welcome dj what does dj stand for it's donnell javon donnell uh-huh. javon but yeah everyone just calls me dj there's a lot of us so we all have nicknames um, oh there's a lot in the family yeah, so um, you're I have, one of. I'm one of seven. Oh, yeah, wow! I'm the, I'm the middle of seven. Wow! And we all kind of go by DJ, TJ, CJ, JJ. So yeah. Oh, all J's. Yeah, we are all. Is J's. it are all the J's Javon? No. Okay. <laughs> What's your earliest memory of community, and whose spirit do you bring to the work that you? I would say the earliest memory I have of community is in Sebastopol. So I'm sure many people have never heard of Sebastopol, but no. it's. Uh, <laughs> I actually talk about California because up in uh, Northern California, there's Sebastopol. Yeah, there's a Sebastopol. You're right mm-hmm. in Northern California, um, but there's a, a street, and it's called Sebastopol, and it is in Saint Bernard Parish, where I t- said my father was from. Okay. So that one street was a community. It's a very long street, but that is my first resemblance of a community. So I'm born on Martin Luther King. I'm born okay. uptown. But my dad's family is from 
Demonor Parish, and they lived on a street called Sebastopol. Well, we had to have a very close-knit community because that one street was where all of my family, my grandmother, my grandfather, my aunts, uncles, and there was a fence, a wooden fence that it would seem like if the wind blew too hard, it would blow down. Mm. But that fence separated the black street from the white street. Oh, wow. Okay. And we had strict guidelines and notice that we could not cross that fence. Because if you cross that fence, then there was always some trouble. There was always fear of us losing our life, fear of the police being called on us, fear of being false accused. So no matter what, we could not cross that street. So there was always a lot of race tensions between Sebastopol and the lane over. So with that level of racial tension growing up, then uh, as a community, we bonded together. Mm. And they're just... The spirit that I took from that was my grandmother's. My grandmother was what they call Big Mama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She mm-hmm. was the authentic, she was the epitome of a Big Mama. Now, they had a lot of elders on the street. But didn't have nothing on her, huh? Nothing. She had nothing on her. <laughs> nothing, nothing. You could, I, I, thought my, I thought my grandma could whip Muhammad Ali ass. Hey. Like, <laughs> that, 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 like that's just how I felt. Like, but like she was that pinnacle of a figure inside of that community. So my grandmother was the Big Mama of the community. Okay. So whenever there was anything going on in the community, everyone met at her house. Whenever there was trouble, mm. whenever there was a decision that needed to be made, because back in those days, the community made decisions. Mm-hmm. So whenever there was a community that needed to be a decision that needed to be made for the entire community, they met at my grandmother's house and her strength and her wisdom. My grandmother had a third grade education, mm-hmm. but yet she basically was the queen of that entire street. And it's probably maybe about 70 different families that lived on that street. Wow. wow. Um, but yeah, and a lot of it dealt with racial tensions. I mean, uh, I been can imagine St. Bernard at that time, St. Bernard Parish. It was, it was real. It was real. It was it was very real. My and family Parish was involved boys, huh? in the St. Bernard massacre, the eighteen sixty eight St. Bernard Parish massacre. That was my family involved in that. Mm. So the racial tension. I mean, I'm growing up. This is the nineteen eighties, and mm. there's still cross burnings in the KKK running through that neighborhood, wow. and uh, to the in the to the point to where as if a black kid got caught on the white, what we call the white people lane, then they were being brutally beat. So my parents were just like, whatever you do, do not go on that lane. And the only thing that separated us was a wooden fence. So the sense of community came from a sense of survival. So that was my first, I want to say my first introduction to what a community is, how we all share one common unity. Mm. And it was based on survival. Wow, amazing! That was uh, a yeah. we didn't reference the whole uh, scholarly <laughs> situation. Uh, I mean, now I got to pick up the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good book. You should definitely yeah. read it. Blood in the cane field. So we used to go. Um, so in the back, in the back of the street, the far, far rear of Sebastopol, were sugarcane fields. And we would go back there in the sugarcane fields and uh, pick the sugarcane and mm-hmm. chop the sugarcane with a machete. And um, there was an old railroad track where we would go crawfishing and crabbing back there as well. But yeah, the sugarcane fields, they were very rich in that area. 
um, and that's part of the Sepinal Massacre. Mm-hmm. When they talk about the sugarcane fields, I can vividly remember as a kid walking back into those fields and chopping down the sugarcane with a machete. Yeah, and it was uh, the source of so much of, and I, I mean, I can't imagine. So this is, we're talking about the 90s, right? The 80s. The 80s, 80s, mm-hmm. 80s 90s. And, uh, but since, you know, the transatlantic, the middle passage, mm-hmm. right? Since the slave trade, like, I don't care what island you're on or even all throughout Latin America, sugarcane became, I mean, sugar, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Became the actual source of power. Mm-hmm. And uh, here you are in St. Bernard Parish and, you know, that power is right in your backyard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's surreal. It's surreal to think about it today. Yeah. And now you popping because you just got... Uh, this eighth war, you got the whole block. I mean, you got mm-hmm. jeans. How you go from uh, talking about sugarcane and you know Saint Bernard <laughs> Parish and this one block and this fence, and now you own the block? Um, so would love to hear. You know, I know that you uh, you're from the eighth ward, um, but you know, then you were doing IT work in Atlanta and then you brought it home and you said, I'm going to create this space here in New Orleans uh, for community and to create and for creatives like us to be in the space. Uh, tell us a little bit about that journey. That journey was actually unplanned. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working in between Atlanta and Washington, D.C. as an IT profession. So I was an IT manager for the federal government. Yeah, I was about to say that sound like government contracts. <laughs> <laughs> I was. So yeah, so I was worked as a IT manager for the federal government and I had been employed there for 20 years. I was in the executive leadership program. I was slated to be one of the probably the next CIO or one of the upcoming CIOs, mm-hmm. um, the youngest executive. And life was good. I had a really good life. I had a very promising career. I had a good mentor mm-hmm. that was saying that a you're going to pave the way for other young black professionals to be able to advance within the government. Just you being at this level, you have a duty, you have a responsibility. And he's encouraged me on the path. So that was the path that I was looking at taking. I was going to be a trailblazer for young blacks advancing in the federal government because the federal government is still very segregated and Mm -hmm. still has a lot of institutionalized racism. So we still need to see young blacks move up into executive positions. So I thought that was my path. I was like, okay, I'm going to be the trailblazer for young blacks and the federal government. I would walk down the hallways and people would pull on me and ask me for meetings and after meeting, after meeting, just wanted to talk to me. Hey, how did you get in this position? I would love to be where you are today. And these are some people who are 10, 15, 20 years my senior Mm -hmm. asking for meetings. So I thought that was my path. My mom gets sick. Mm-hmm. She's in the hospital for one month, and I'm just like, oh, okay, she'll get better. She's in the hospital for a second month, and then I'm just like, okay, this is getting a little bit serious. Take a leave of absence from work. We're in a hospital with my mom right at university. Make a long story short, doctor, after three months of being in there, doctor said, we're going to have to release your mom. She's not going to get better. She's only going to get worse, and she probably doesn't have much longer to live. It disturbed me that he said this in front of her. Mm -hmm. He may have pulled me maybe five steps away from the hospital bed. So you only get one mother. So at that point, I contacted my siblings, and I was like, look, mom is going to be released. 
doctor said that she probably doesn't have much longer to live. She's not going to get better. She's only going to get worse. We have to consider putting in a hospice or doing home health note services, nurse services. So we looked into it and brought her home and I couldn't find a home health nurse 24 hour service that I was satisfied with. Started doing interviews, but that's just so just weird to leave your mm. mom in the care of someone right. for 24 hours. And um, <laughs> the hospice, I thought she would just kind of like lose all hope and she would die even faster. Mm-hmm. So it was at that point to where as I decided to quit my corporate job and move back home, I said, I have enough savings I, to where as I can leave the workplace for two years, two or three years. Talk about managing your money. <laughs> Let's go, DJ. <laughs> so, yeah. So I said, I, you know, I can quit, take care of my mom full time for That's two, three years. That's a real flex, huh? <laughs> flex. <laughs> it's silly. So, yeah. So I, um, I quit. Quit my job, and my mom, she couldn't walk. She couldn't feed herself. She couldn't bathe herself um, when I first brought her home. But I, um, I, for lack of a better word, nursed her back to health. Mm-hmm. I started a new beginning. We, I threw everything in the house away. I threw her clothes away. I threw the refrigerator away. I threw the plates, bed Mm-hmm. Every single thing, the sofa, I threw everything in the house away. Painted the house. It looked like a completely different house. When she mm-hmm. walked in, every possession she owned, minus a few pictures, was gone. And she hated me. She cried. And um, I said, I need you to understand this is a new beginning. Right. You wouldn't understand this if you walked into the same old space. Mm-hmm. So I need you to understand that. This is a new beginning. You're going to live. You're going to beat this. And it was rough. I said, you're going to eat the way I eat. You're going to live the way I live. You're going to walk again. Mm. You're going to live. And we started off taking two steps a day. Mm. I said, all I want you to do is just walk two steps. She said, no, I can't walk. I said, you're going to get out of this wheelchair. You're going to walk two steps. Started walking two steps. Then I said, okay, I'm going to walk 10. And every single day, we gradually increased her walking steps. Mm-hmm. Every single day, I fed her, bathed her, nursed her back to health. We started meditating. Wow. I said, one of the things that we need to do is not just heal your physical body, but we need to heal your mental mm-hmm. state as well. So we started meditating. And we started having more conversation and just around health, wellness, joy, happiness, what those Mm -hmm. things are. And proud to say that my mom today, she's a hundred times better. She bakes the baked goods here. She's here every day walking up and down. That's awesome. She went to walking three, four miles a day. Um, so yeah, so that was it. So when she started getting better and I realized that I didn't have to be there as much, I said, well, I quit my job. My mom <laughs> is getting better. I got to do something to make money. <laughs> so these properties came for sale and I ended up purchasing these properties and this is where we are today. Wow. So, Congratulations. Damn, Thank you. That is amazing. Like, I'm over here tearing up. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah. It, it also, I couldn't help but think about, you know, the doctor mentioned hospice. Like, how many other individuals would still be living if we 
we changed our mindset in regards to, oh, well, the doctor said this is what's best for my mom. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, let me, let me, you know, maybe find some resources like you did, or can I manage my money well and take off and actually nurse my parent back to 100%, you know what I mean? And it's, it's, Sorry. And have the I'm wisdom just to right just be now. like, it actually <laughs> is uh, also the visual. It's like mm -hmm. what's in here. It's yeah. all of these things and it's mind that are matter. around mm -hmm. us yeah. that make us, you know, well. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It was. Um, so, yeah, I say all that to say my journey. It was completely different. If you would asked me three years ago, would I be back in New Orleans doing what I'm doing now? I would have said absolutely not. I mm -hmm. thought I was. So still, it's been three years. Um, uh, no. I, I've technically been back in New Orleans. I quit my job in April of 2019. Oh, okay. Yeah, so April of 2019 is when I quit my job. Um, but I say back three years because that was prior to my mom getting to her level of illness that yeah. she was at. Yeah. You know, when we thought that you know things were somewhat okay. Yeah. But you only get one mom, so it was you like only a, yeah. get one. Yeah, so it was an easy decision. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I was in the best position out of all my siblings to just quit my job cold turkey and be able to sustain and maintain my lifestyle. So and improve it. So it was one of those things to where I'm in the best position. You only get one mom. Let me what I need to do. And as the church uh, says, then you get all these uh, <laughs> gems in your crown and, and all the gems, you know, are here. Uh, yes. And so it's really amazing to, to watch. And it's also probably why it feels so great in here from an uh, energy perspective. Thanks. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate that. Um, Definitely appreciate it. It because, means a lot. Yeah. What has built this is not just, you know, your hard work and your diligence and, you know, the business plan and all those things, but also the actual uh, spirit work of um, the care that went into your mom's, mm -hmm. you know, uh, journey and your journey. And, you know, you can see it and feel it in this place. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Something that the Black and Brown Get Down has always um, been sort of at the center of the work is this place where culture, art, and social justice meet. And that's sort of what informs our work, and that's our compass. And those things have to be present. How does that inform your work? So my um, parents have always instilled social activism into our life. Growing up as a kid, we were very well aware of social activism. I remember as a kid when Nelson Mandela got released from prison, mm -hmm. my mom, my dad, they gathered all of us around the TV and they made us watch it. It was a moment in history to where as my mom and my dad, they wanted us to witness. Um, we always had discussions regarding social justice um, in regards to blending that with the art and culture of New Orleans is just, it's very difficult to grow up in New Orleans and not have that infused in you, the art and culture. So in designing this space, and as well as NOLA Art Bar, it was mandatory for me to infuse education as well as visual art in it the cultural arts of New Orleans into the spaces. So the way New Orleans Art Bar came about was I was walking down Magazine Street and I'm looking down Julia Street and I'm with a friend of mine and we're looking at all the art galleries and I'm just like, hey, you're a phenomenal artist. 
why isn't your art in some of these galleries? And then that's when he explained the politics of local artists getting into those prestigious, yes, those galleries. And I said, well, you know what? I said, well, I have a space. Um, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it yet, but I would love to create an art gallery where local artists can display their work, particularly street artists can display their work in a clean, aesthetically environment with, you know, hardwood floors and white walls because it showcases different a lot of the local street artists, they are only relying on murals for their mm -hmm. works to be seen on a large scale. But you can't sell the building that that mural is on. You can't sell that mural. Yeah. So I said, well, let me create a space where local artists can showcase their works and profit from it. That's how New Orleans Art Board came about. The space just happened to have a liquor license, so it just became, you know, common sense to say, okay, let me combine art mm. gallery yeah. as well as a craft cocktail bar. But the reason why I went to yes, craft cocktail... Yes, for the cocktail craft cocktail bar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. What's your favorite cocktail? I actually don't drink. Ah! No. Now, you know, usually I don't trust people who don't drink. But, uh, <laughs> I've heard that before. <laughs> I've heard that before. <laughs> but if you don't drink, got it. It's probably why. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I've heard that before. But um, but yeah, so at the craft cocktail, I wanted to showcase the art of drinking. Mm -hmm. And as far as the community activism part, it was imperative for me to create a space where we combated a lot of the oppression that go on within the black community. Mm. So Nelson Mandela, I mentioned Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela said the most powerful weapon in the world is education. It's not a gun. It's not a knife. It's not a stick. It's not a bomb. It's education. Mm. And when you think about it, the educational system that is currently being taught to our youth is still rooted in institutionalized racism and subjecting us and indoctrinating us with inferiorities and the inferiority complex. Um, Tom Burrell does a really good job of documenting the genesis of the origins of how media, mass media, the school system has indoctrinated us with the inferiority complex. And the reason being is because powerful people cannot afford to educate the people they oppress. Because once you mm -hmm. educate the people you oppress, they will no longer ask for power. Mm -mm. They will take it. Uprise. Yeah. So for me... It became imperative to create a space where individuals outside of the school curriculum can become educated. We find out you're a whole Malcolm X. <laughs> <laughs> Let me find out, no, DJ. Real, huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so James Baldwin, Baldwin and Co. Um, I know growing up in my grandmother's house or my great aunt's house. They had countless books. So one of the books that I actually learned how to read uh, on was The Evidence of Things Not Seen by James Baldwin. How has James Baldwin influenced you? And in addition to that, what role have books played in your life? So I grew up with a speech impediment. So I was in speech class up until pretty much almost going into high school. I went to remain high school, but pretty much right before then I was in speech class all throughout all throughout my um, adolescent life. And attending the speech therapy, 
my parents got me involved into these book clubs, mm. almost like Toastmasters for kids. Mm. And being in those Toastmasters, part of the requirement were reading. You had to read aloud. You had to do a lot of reading and public speaking. So I was in all these book clubs and just developed an affinity for reading. And um, also my dad was, both of my parents were really big on reading, but my dad had this idea so as on Mondays, it was dedicated for reading. So every Monday we had to read. Um, and my dad was one of those strong uh, black empowerment individuals to as we couldn't watch a TV show or we couldn't watch a movie if it wasn't starring a black person. We couldn't read a book if mm-hmm. it wasn't about a black person. So that got us involved into reading about Malcolm X and W.E. Du Bois and Carter G. Woodson, Paul Robeson, James Baldwin got us reading about those individuals at a very early age. Um, And I just fell in love with James Baldwin from an early age. But the reading habit developed from the speech impediment that, as a kid, I thought it was one of the worst things that can happen. Mm. Um, But it helped me develop this thirst for reading and this love for reading to where now I can sit down with a book and read for 14 hours straight. Um, because I've been developing this habit and this love and this Mm -hmm. passion since I was an adolescent kid. Mm -hmm. Um, And James Baldwin became one of my favorites. Probably when I read The Fire Next Time. Um, So The Fire Next Time is two essays. And one is to his nephew. And then the second one is an essay about the black experience, but also his experience with Christianity and the indoctrination of Christianity, his somewhat rebellion against the institution of it, as well as his, I won't say threat, but his outcry to white America that mm. a this racist culture, this racist society that you created You've made it seem like it's only a black person's burden, but this is also your burden. Hello. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I read his work and how well he articulated his rage, mm. I just fell in love with it. See, so often we're taught that we should suppress our rage. Right. Don't right. be angry. You shouldn't be angry. And then for blacks, it's even worse because if you're a black man, then you get the angry black syndrome. Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, he's an angry black man. If you're a black woman, you'd be like, oh, she's a bitch. Mm-hmm. So we don't have any space to be to 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 exert our rage. We don't have any space. There's no safe place to where we can openly express our rage. And during that time, then if you expressed it, then they called you a terrorist or they mm-hmm. called you um hate speech with Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. But the reason why James Baldwin never got that tag was because he articulated it so well. And um, I just fell in love with it. I don't know. When he went off to Paris, I think at that point they were probably like, he's like, fuck this country. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, but I mean, he did did end up on the FBI watch list. Um, But, you know, it... It took them so long to understand what he was doing, but he had then wrote many, many works by the time he ended up on that FBI watch list because it was like, hold up, hold up, hold up. 
No, they were too dumb to understand mm-hmm. what he was writing and what he was saying in his work. <laughs> um, but he articulated it so well. But he never got that tag as like the angry black man. Right. Yeah. Um, so, or like a terrorist, so so to speak. Uh, but I just love the way he wrote. His writing style is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, like Malcolm X is one of my favorite figures of all time, just favorite heroes of all time. Um, but in starting a bookstore, I said, well, I want it to be named after an author. Mm-hmm. Um, and Malcolm just didn't author mm-hmm. you know, yeah. any right. books. So I looked at James Baldwin as one of my favorite authors, and it just became one of those things to where I was like, he's a clear choice. He's my one of my favorites, and he's authored a ridiculous amount of books. Mm-hmm. So I picked I him. I see you have the uh, Uncle Bobby's. Uh, shirt on. Yes, I love uh, Uncle Bobby's. Shout out to my friend Mark. Yes, uh, I love Uncle Bobby's. <laughs> yeah, and so do you get to connect with other um, black-owned bookstores? I do, I do. I've actually talked to um, Uncle Bobby's uh, staff a number of times in creating this space and just talking to them about, hey, you know, what's some of your standard operating procedures? What are you guys seeing in a, as a black bookseller? What works for you? What doesn't work? Yeah. You know, all the way down to the hours, you know. Like, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, there's, I love Uncle Bobby's. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a cool space. Yeah. And shout out to Semicolon also. Semicolon Bookstore in Chicago. Um, phenomenal bookstore doing amazing things in the community. Um, I hope that Baldwin can grow. Um, well, I should say I will make Baldwin grow into mm-hmm. um a similar similar community a uh, similar community hub as they're doing at on um, semicolon in chicago well we definitely feel the love and we feel like uh this is our home now this is our turn <laughs> what, sure. what's up everyone sure. hey yes i love it i love it that's how i want it to be i want everybody to feel welcome feel comfortable when they come here yeah. you know um i designed this you know you look at some of my notes when i was designing it one of the things that i said i said man not only do I want it to be an intellectual hub, but I want people to walk in here and feel like they're the best version of themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you walk in here, you feel like I'm in the I'm the best version of myself. And if I'm not, then I got every tool within arm's reach to be that. Oh, because I'm in the presence be of so greatness. Inspired by this. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, definitely. And the people are already talking about it. Like as you know, I live in California, so I have some friends out here, and I'm just like, yeah, you know, we're gonna be recording at Baldwin and Co. And they're like, yo, like for real, like y'all up in there. So yeah, people, it's definitely uh, about to hit. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, that's that was the design I had. I said, man, I wanted, I want to encourage people to have a good mindset. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, you know, while you know, I don't feel like enough of New Orleans spaces allow for that. Like, man, we all love for our debauchery. Yeah. Like, yeah. like yeah, we got yeah. plenty of spaces yeah. for that, <laughs> you know? But I mean, as far as the growth mindset, down. yeah, it goes down. Now it's fun. I love it, yeah. you know? But I mean, but we, you know, we need those spaces where we can get, you know, we can get into deep intellectual thought-provoking conversations and grow and challenge each other. Yeah. You know, so that's what I wanted to create a space. And like I said, when when you walk in here, I want you to feel like you're in the presence of greatness. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in the presence of some of the best literary minds that has ever walked this planet. So please indulge. That's real. Man. All right. So our bar opened six weeks before COVID shut down the country um baldwin and co opened in the midst of the pandemic um both 
know, had their troubles like a lot of uh, establishments throughout the country, but now they're thriving. So clearly this is a need in New Orleans. What has that experience been like for you? <laughs> yeah, take your time with this one. I'm sure it's a mix of emotions, man. Man, it was hell. I mean, just being 100, yeah, it was, yeah, it was yeah. hell. Let the people know, man. Uh, man, um, but there's a saying. When you find yourself walking through hell, mm-hmm. keep going. Mm-hmm. Because on the other side is paradise. Mm-hmm. So I just kept going. And I said, I'm okay with failure. I just can't quit. As I'm walking along this path, it's hell. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be trials. There's going to be tribulations. I may fail. I may fall down. I may fall down to my knees and feel like I can't go anymore. But I have to keep going. I have to keep moving forward. Um, there's a wonderful quote that I love by Martin Luther King, and it doesn't necessarily apply to, to, to where I am. It's far more profound than what I went through. But, you know, he says, and I'm sure you all have heard it before. Um, I first heard it when Travis Smiley did the State of the Union address. Mm. I'm trying to think of the it was one of our state reps who said it on stage, and I thought it was one of the most profound things I've ever heard. Um, um, and that's when I heard, I, I found out it was Martin Luther King said it, but he said, if you can't fly, then run. Mm-hmm. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But by all means, keep moving forward. And I live by that. So there's going to be times... <laughs> <laughs> but y'all who can't see that, I just threw my hands up. I'm surrendering. I'm just <laughs> the spirit has taken over. I mean, we not at benediction, but we are at the second offering. DJ, go. <laughs> so yeah, so as I'm walking through what I considered hell, because you gotta think about it. So this is my, my mental state as I'm walking through this. You asked me what was the experience. I'm going to tell you what the experience is like. I got a wonderful life. Mm-hmm. I got a corporate job. I'm saved to be the next CIO. Come down here, quit my job, take care of my mom. Mom's getting better. I said, you know what? I'm going to start these businesses. I'm going to take my life savings, the money that I was going to live off for the next two, three, three years. I'm going to buy back the block. I'm going to renovate it and start these businesses. That's my mindset. Plan goes into action. My life savings, I'm investing in this. I don't have any partners. Mm-hmm. I own all this by myself. So Flex. didn't get any loans. So this is cash money that I've invested in this. Mm-hmm. Six weeks into opening Nola Art Bar, COVID happens. The mayor makes an announcement and says, all bars have to close immediately. I'm devastated. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what the fuck? What am I going to do? I just invested my life savings into an idea that I don't know will ever come to fruition, into a dream Mm -hmm. that at this point, I don't know how to make it into a reality. Mm -hmm. So it was hard, man. A lot of, lot of sleepless nights. And um, I told myself, I said, man, you have to be more creative. 
we are all products of our own decision. There's going to be things that we can't control. We go through life, there's a lot of things that we can't control, but we are the product of our own decision. I didn't want to be a victim of my circumstances. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, they look at their circumstances, they say, I'm going to be a victim of my circumstances. That's not me. Mm -hmm. I said, you know what? I said, I, I believe that we have the power to change our circumstances. It's just purely a result based off our decisions and mm -hmm. how creative we are. Mm -hmm. And I said, let me get in the lab, figure out what I can do. So that's when I just started implementing small ideas to help keep Art Bar alive through the COVID and then started using that money to invest inside of Baldwin & Co. I didn't want to prolong the opening of Baldwin & Co. any longer. So I said, I know it's going to be difficult to open it in the middle of a pandemic. It's as difficult as probably like, I don't know if you all ever went to Boy Scouts, but you ever tried mm -hmm. to start a fire? A Boy Scout. Yeah. You ever tried to fire with just a stick? Yeah. How difficult is that? Beyond. It's very difficult. Yeah. You want to give up? Yeah. <laughs> like it's, nah. it's difficult in New Orleans summer. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's I difficult bet. to do that in New Orleans summer. <laughs> Opening this in the middle of COVID with the level of quality that I put into it, it's like starting that fire in the middle of a damn rainstorm. Mm. That's what it's like. Mm. That's what I felt like it was like. Operating Nola Art Bar after only six weeks of opening in the middle of COVID and then opening this. That's what it felt like. That's what that journey was like. It was hell. Mm. It was pure hell. But I feel like I'm stronger in the end after mm. coming through it. Ooh. I do remember when, um, you know, jeans was up for, well, when they closed it down, everybody went and got their hot sausage, uh, you know, and, and then everybody was on the toilet. Cause, <laughs> yes, yes, it do it to you. Because you are, no, I was yes. going down. Yes. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> but I do remember when uh, when they got bought and, and I mean, you know, I didn't know it was you, uh, but at that time there was just like all these rumors like, oh, it's about to be condos or it's about to be gentrified. I mean, you know, behold, the black man uh, <laughs> bought, bought the block. But, um, yeah, I'm just curious, like, what are your thoughts uh, on the gentrification that's happening in the city and uh, in this neighborhood particularly? Uh, and, you know, just kind of what do you make of it? And uh, it's just beautiful to see the centering of, like, blackness in uh, this place that's being completely gentrified. That's a loaded question. Yeah, it's tough. Um, as far as the purchase of the building, um, everyone thought it was an old white man. Everybody thought Jeans was an old black man and thought he had sold it to an old white man. Um, so it was interesting to hear all the rumors about it was going to be a condo. Yeah. I didn't start any of those rumors. I don't know where those things came about. <laughs> but I mean, people, you know, people started all kind of rumors, and I would just sit and listen. It's so funny. I would walk out of the Jeans building, lock the door with the key, and people would be like, "Yeah, it's." Fucked up. Somebody, some old white man bought this and going to turn it into condos. <laughs> <laughs> I'm locking the building. <laughs> you got black people saying, yeah, man, that's fucked up. Some old white man bought this and going to turn it into condos. Can't have shit. <laughs> never, never not once did they ask, hey, did you buy this building? Never. Not one time. You know, so I mean, uh, so it was interesting. Uh going through it. Um, but the gentrification, um, man, that's a hot 
topic in New Orleans. It is yeah. very, um, and moving back to New Orleans, like when I, you know, because I've been going for 20 years. So in coming back, I was like, shit, is this a new word that like, did people just learn what this was in New Orleans? Um, um, because it's actually been happening um, since mm -hmm. Katrina. Since the very beginning of Katrina, it started happening. I don't know if you remember, but they held the city plans on what they were mm -hmm. going to do mm -hmm. because they wanted to deliberately force people to stay where they were so they can do development. So I remember people were protesting and picketing, saying, hey, what are you going to do? When are you going to start a government assistance in rebuilding these homes? And the city deliberately held the plans because they had plans for gentrification. Mm. And so, they were banking on people not coming back, too. Because I know when I was mm -hmm. in school, it was tons of people relocating to mm -hmm. Atlanta. And they were like, oh, no, we ain't going back. So exactly. they left their homes and everything there. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. So, so yeah. So it just it's I'm glad that people are finally awakened to it. My thoughts on it personally. So, like, particularly in this community, because I grew up right down the street, went to school right across the street, um, walked these streets so many times, and it looked completely different. I remember um, coming back. One time I was driving down St. Claude and I called my brother and I was like, bro, I said, man, um, man, I got white people in front of St. Rock Market. I said, man, somebody might need to call them and like somebody might need to help them. I was like, I don't think they know where they at. This is before St. Rock. Yeah, I was like, I don't think they know where they at. So this, is, this is when the gentrification was just starting to happen. And my brother was like, nah, man, it's... it's Changing, I, I'm seeing white girls walking their dogs, giant, mm. you know, at, at at dusk. You know, I'm like, man, it's dusk outside. They got mm -hmm. white people jogging down the street. I was like, I don't think they know where they at. <laughs> like some, you know, something wrong. Mm. Um, so then that's to go down. Yeah, somebody <laughs> go down. I'm, you know, so I'm paying attention to it. Um, so I will say this about gentrification: the improvement of community in itself is not a bad thing. That's not where we, a lot, I think a lot of times people think that blacks have an issue with the improvement of community uh, uh, inside of our neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. that's, that's not it at all. That's the counter argument that people make. Yeah. Um, it's the, the fact that there are government programs and institutions that marginalize the opportunity blacks have to improve our own communities. Mm -hmm. If we were afforded those same those same privileges in, uh, in education and finance opportunities, then we can improve our own community. Yeah. We are not afforded that. Like I said, I work for the federal government. I work for the FDIC. FDIC ensures the banking industry, so I'm very familiar with banking lending practices. In 2016, there was an article that came out that showed how... Blacks are denied the same loan opportunities white are mm -hmm. with the same exact application. Whites are giving these loans at a discounted interest rate yeah. and being mm -hmm. approved at the rate four to one. <clears throat> four to one they're being approved for loans versus me with the same exact application. Just because I checked that block to say I'm black. Mm -hmm. So we're not afforded those opportunities to rebuild our own communities, to buy back our own block. Yeah. That's the problem with gentrification. The institutionalized racism that exists within the banking and lending and housing and fair act and, and the fair act housing principles and practices. 
Um, so that's my problem with gentrification. Improving our communities, I am all for the improvement of black communities. I just wish that we were afforded the same opportunities other races are when we try to buy and purchase and improve real estate and get loans to do it. Yeah. I mean, Crescent Park should have been there, huh? Been there. Yep. Yep. And then the funny thing is, like, whenever whites come into the community, then all of a sudden the city and government officials start taking uh, an active role mm-hmm. in cleaning it up. And but investing you, and into investing it. in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you get all these tax incentives and tax breaks and but we don't get the same opportunity. We don't get those same privileges. So um it's just unfortunate. So we it's tough. We got a we got a hard road. Um but that's how I feel about this community. But I still love this community and I said rather than complain about gentrification because I could have bought I mean I could have bought real estate wherever. Mm-hmm. Um but one of the things I that helped me decide to buy this corner right here is because I said, I don't want to just complain about gentrification. When I came down here, everyone was talking about gentrification. Everybody in their mama, almost like every conversation, I was like, wow, did they just learn this word down here? So I said, well, I don't want to just complain about it. Let me do something about it. Um, and that's one of the things I love about James Baldwin. Go back mm-hmm. to it, because in the fight next time, that's one of the things that James Baldwin talks about. It's like, no, man, you don't just sit there and accept the conditions. but or complain about it, but move into an active role. Mm. So part of my thinking was, I'm not going to sit back and complain that white people are coming into historically black communities and taking over our community. I'm going to do my part in investing in rebuilding my own community. And that's what I encourage every black to do. Like we can't just sit back and complain that gentrification is taking over our communities. No, Mm. we can buy our own communities. We can invest in our own community, just becoming financial literate. And then once you become financial literate, then you learn how to save to where you're not so dependent upon loans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's real. So, you know, you mentioned that you bought up this area. What's next? Like, what is your next venture? And then with that, you talked about resources. Um, are you doing any mentoring or, or what? Like, how does that look for you and, and where you are right now? in life um right now is a non-profit organization that is going to be part of ball winning company and we're going to work to improving literacy within mm-hmm. the community there is a direct correlation between mass incarceration and the literacy rates mm-hmm. so i want to combat mass incarceration through literacy um, they build prisons off of fourth grade test scores and not just any test scores, but your reading and reading comprehension, not particularly the math, but your reading and reading comprehension. If you look at the statistics on the prison population and their literacy rates, it is a direct correlation. So one of the things I want to do is fight mass incarceration, fight the illiteracy rates in New Orleans. We have deplorable literacy rates yeah. here in the city. 73%. Uh, excuse me, 73% mm-hmm. of third graders are not reading on grade level. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wild. Yes. So that's one of the, so that's what's next is the far more community engagement, community activism, community involvement, um, getting kids reading and helping individuals, not just kids, but also adults, choose education over entertainment. 
Yeah, that's so amazing. I mean, I can say for myself, reading has definitely changed my life. I'm a second generation uh, late reader. So I was in the ninth grade, went to trash schools, right? Was in the ninth grade and could not read, could not read on grade level. And so um, it was just my interest in sports that I was just like, oh, okay, let me pick up this book mm-hmm. and like, let me read yeah. about, you know, biographies. I think when you're first reading biographies are like a thing, yes. you're just trying to read about somebody's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom, you know, also lay reader. She really didn't even learn how to read until, uh, you know, years ago through the church and stuff, uh, and reading her Bible and, you know, uh, it's not an uncommon story. Mm-mm. And, yeah. Uh, so, but what, uh, now that I, you know, love books and in books all the time, what I feel like I've been robbed is so much. And so it's a wonderful thing just to, you know, dedicate such a, um, a brilliant mind like yours to this cause because we need it. We need it in this city right now, because given the connection that incarceration has had in this state, um, it's something that, you know, we really need to, um, you know, the reforms are great, but then it's also like, what are we building? Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's not enough to just, well, the city and the state and the federal government, they're not doing enough for prison reform. Yeah. They're just not. Um, so that's why I say we have a active role in uh, our eradication of racism. Like yeah. we have to play more of an active role in not giving them the opportunities to oppress us. Yeah. It's not just the dismantling Mm -mm. of those systems, but it's about the building of our people, the building of our community and our minds. Exactly. I agree. Salute to you. (laughs) Um, Salute to you all. I mean, thank you for this forum. Thank you for this platform. I think what you all are doing are amazing. So, I mean, I applaud you all. And I am, you know, humbly gracious that you all selected me to be a part of it and include me as a guest. Yes, oh, I mean, and who would have known? You a whole piece out here. <laughs> right. like, and I'm not yeah. even talking about as the owner. Like, I'm like, the passion, the spirit, right. the, nah. uh, what you bring is... Uh, inspiration. Some, yes. Nah, man. Yeah. <laughs> you brought me from tears to joy. <laughs> like, bro. Man. Yeah, man, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. I, I do appreciate it. I, lo- I love... Um, I created this medium because everyone isn't a reader, but I wanted... Uh, information to be exchanged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I needed people to have a space to where if you're not a traditional reader, maybe you're an auditory learner, then you have a platform, you have a space to where you can develop it and get that out and it mm-hmm. can help other people grow. And I love podcasting, so I've always been a really big fan of it. So, I mean, thank you for using the space and for just you know being a part of the Baldwin and Co. family. I consider Yay. you all part of the ball with your hey, family. We so, yeah. in there. <laughs> Yay, I love it. Um, <laughs> thank you, DJ. Oh, yeah. thank you. Oh, and where can we find you? <laughs> He's like, uh, ball we on Twitter, Twitter, Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't have any personal social media. Okay, okay. Um, but you can always find me here at Ball with the Company. You know, I'm always walking in and out through these doors in between here and Nola Art Bar. But I'm always around. So yeah, here at Baldwin and Company, like I said, I created this space for interpersonal communication. I love it. Um, so you can always find me and engage in some interpersonal communication over a cup of coffee. Appreciate that. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate Thank y'all. You. you guys are great.
So the juice. Today on the juice, we're going to talk about Juneteenth. For those of you who do not know, Juneteenth marks the day where those uh, who were enslaved finally were informed that they were quote unquote free. So that's June 19th, 1865. What's going on with it is the United States Senate unanimously passed a bill that will recognize Juneteenth as a federal holiday. Um, Hopefully by the time you all are hearing this, uh, it will then have been signed by signed and approved by the House of Representatives and uh, consequently President Biden. Previously, the Senate did not reach a unanimous decision on this last year uh, as there were talks about how would they actually fund this holiday and give employees uh, the day off. They actually talked about swapping it out with Columbus Day, which I think is problematic as is. But uh, it's nice to see that the Senate has now put forth something that is long overdue and that is recognizing Juneteenth. So it is my hope that this will stimulate conversations, especially conversations uh, where um, we're talking about the development of curriculum in schools where they have, they're trying to ensure that cri- that the critical race theory is not taught in our schools. So hopefully uh, this will Stimulate again, stimulate conversation, not only in the education system, but then also among families, because you'd be surprised about the number of individuals throughout this country who know nothing about Juneteenth, including African Americans. So, um, and that's by design, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. they don't want you to absolutely. know your history no, because no. then. You know, uh, you're going to start asking for reparations. And shit. Right. <laughs> and, I mean, it's so wild that, like, while I think uh, that this is great and it's amazing, let's, you know, acknowledge, uh, you know, the history and let's acknowledge uh, our ancestors who, um, who hopefully, you know, uh, see this as a good thing although mm-hmm. i'm sure they like uh where's the check yeah, for, yeah, yeah, <laughs> for yeah, my yeah, people for yeah. my kids uh the big thing is it's crazy that everybody gets the day off right mm-hmm. so we talk about equity mm-hmm. like tell me why uh those who were not enslaved <laughs> or as you know like or specifically white people why right, they yeah. should get the day off that's paid yeah. on juneteenth uh, mm, that's wild to me yeah uh, so, you know, uh, that's just me, yeah. uh, you know, shout out to the Louisiana, uh, uh, legislature, uh, they were able to also pass and, you know, unanimous both mm-hmm. in the Senate and in the house, uh, Larry Selders put that forward and shout out to Ted James and, you know, all of the black, uh, caucus here in Louisiana for, um, moving that as well. But yeah, you know, I- I'm here for it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think like, I mean, we talk about accountability. So at the very least, I think this is a really great um, opportunity to acknowledge the wrong that was done. Um, and yeah, moreover, the uh, systemic racism that is continuously going on throughout our community. So when we start talking about uh, what does reparations look like, hopefully that's will. Yeah. Be yeah. Part and of I'm sure it's conversation. Last year, and I know they've been people have been trying to pass this, mm-hmm. you know, and people have been putting this up every single year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now with the conversation of reparations, I'm just sure they're, you know, they're like, uh, let me give you this holiday. Right. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> we can do the reparation study uh, yeah. next year. Yeah. Let me give you this holiday right quick. Uh, so, you know, uh, but shout out also- to, to folks who are like at least trying to create that baseline mm-hmm. of like, mm-hmm. you will acknowledge, which, you know, the US government has never acknowledged. Um, 
you know, the fact that they have enslaved and this whole country has been uh, built on stolen land yes. and yes. the labor of yes. enslaved folks, the labor of, you know, Chinese folks, of uh mm. You know the Hmong, mm-hmm. Mexican, mm-hmm. Filipinos mm-hmm. picking in terms Especially of agriculture. Those are not our uh, Anglo-Saxon, but right. yeah. <laughs> so I mean, you know. Yeah. Um, but like the notion about swapping this out for Columbus Day. How about we have some? How about we just dis like disregard Columbus Day and actually call it for what it is, Indigenous Peoples Day, yeah. and acknowledge oh, that's the fact. Stuff, you know. Well, you know, but I'm saying like, yeah, hey, y'all wasn't really advice. here. Like, you colonized this area, and then you gave this holiday to this white man, yeah. Columbus, who was like, oh, I stumbled upon this land. Like, right. mm, did you, bro? Like, right. come on. So, um, rather than swapping this out, uh, you know, it's, it's good to see that. In addition to, they are establishing this holiday. The last major holiday that was created was actually Martin Luther King Day back in mm-hmm. 1983. So hopefully, you know, this is stepping in, in the right direction besides the fact that it is long overdue. Yeah. Facts. Well, I think that's it. Um, you know, we are going to come back for Rising Ritual. Today on Rising Ritual, what's up, Joe? You're going to talk to us about meditation. Yes. So, uh, as DJ mentioned, one of the great ways to improve self is the act of meditation personally i use the calm app because they have guided meditations um it is not um, free however there are some free apps that are out there but yeah, essentially like timer Timer's yeah good. yeah but essentially what it is is um it's a platform that allows you to well teaches you rather different techniques on how to calm yourself um relax helps with sleep deprivation and whatnot. So the way I go about utilizing these apps is by finding uh, a a comfortable space and then putting my body into a, a, a comfortable position. And then I then close my eyes, really focus on my breathing and just really try to clear my thoughts. Um, I can't tell you the amount of peace that this type of exercise can bring you, uh, especially when you focus on just breathing, you know, Um, and it really helps with anxiety, which is something that we all struggle with from time to time. I know I struggle with it. So really just honing in on where I am and being present for that moment without allowing everything else that is going on in my world to take precedence over where I am right there. I'm glad you can do that. I, you know, meditation <laughs> is a, I don't know all the time for me. Uh, Cause I think sometimes even just sitting comfortably without moving is a fucking challenge. Uh-huh. Uh, and for people who are actually anxious, I'm not mm-hmm. saying you're not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just saying that, you know, it could just closing, getting to the place where you close your eyes. I mean, getting to the place where you're, I mean, it's a practice because mm-hmm. you start where you're at. Right, right, and right, right. Like it's not going to happen overnight. Yeah, because what and you just described didn't. is like you go into a trance <laughs> yeah. and then like you turn on the calm app. Right, right. And, but you know, I had to get and you're here. like 25 minutes in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and I'm glad that's how it works for you. Yeah. For me, uh, it has worked in a very uh, like I have to, you know, 
as someone who has so many things, businesses, you know, mm-hmm. like my mind is going all the time to calm my mind mm-hmm. and get to a place where I can sit still, to get to a place where I can close my eyes, to get to the place where I can meditate for two minutes has been mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, and to be able to see the ideas and the thoughts in the, you know, whether they're positive or a productive type of task I have to do or inner mm-hmm. uh, negative energy and to see it in front as I'm closing my eyes to see it roll through that kind of front of my eyes and then to push it back so that I can just concentrate on my breathing that has taken me years mm-hmm. uh, it's <clears throat> it's for real practice yeah it is it is it, like I said I did not get here overnight yeah. um, at first I was like no nah, this is stupid this isn't gonna work but yeah. it's something that you have to actively practice yeah yeah, with everything going on, you have to be you have to acknowledge the fact that you're no good unless you're at peace in some of these situations. So as your mind is running and whatnot, I just challenge you, Mary, and I'm standing there with you uh, as your friend. When you have those moments, feel free to call me and we can walk through a meditation exercise together because <laughs> again it is a practice it's not going to happen overnight um, you know what i mean well thank you friend mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> <laughs> um and if anybody wants to call joe joe's happy to lead you through a meditation did you want to drop your number joe no i don't want to drop my number but you can find me at uh jd inspired on the gram uh, <laughs> hit the dm i might check it i'm trying to do Let better about you're trying that, to be a calm but, coach uh, well that's that on that thanks joe and uh that's it that's all for the show we thank you for listening uh follow us on the black and brown get down and you know apple podcast uh spotify and that's and it. review send that to review yeah, in. rate review yep, 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 follow yep. do all the things hey, peace check us out